You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, welcome everyone to this episode of the podcast. Before we get started, we wanted to mention that our March class is coming up and it's called Why God Died, How Atonement Theories Try to Explain Salvation. Yeah, and it's going to be taught by our friend and nerd in residence, Jennifer Garcia Bashaw. She's fantastic. I feel like people, you know, I'm getting a little bit of a complex because yeah, I think people, a bit, actually. I, exactly. I think people like her more than us, but that's okay. That's okay. That's what we want. As always, the class is pay what you can until the class ends. And then uh, you can download it after that if you sign up later for $25. But if you sign up and you can't make the live class, no worries. You can still do pay what you can. Go ahead and sign up and then we'll send a link afterward that you can access later. Yeah, and you're asking, where do I sign up? Well, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com forward slash atonement. Simple as that. Hey, folks, welcome to this episode of the podcast with just me and Jared. Sorry to disappoint, but that's the way it is. It's just us two today. Yeah, I mean, we're not really sorry to disappoint. No, I think we like disappointing we do, people. Yeah. Speaking of disappointing, <laughs> let's talk about our topic today. <laughs> the topic today is, should the Bible be read like any other book? If you start taking it seriously, digging in, you, you can't help but see your own biases, your own assumptions, the baggage we bring with us when we say simple things like, I trust the Bible. I think for a lot of people to answer the question, should the Bible be read like any other book, to answer it yes, will actually bring more engagement with the Bible, not less. The topic today is, should the Bible be read like any other book? And the reason we want to talk about this is because this is something that comes up a lot in our lives from people who are maybe struggling with issues of scholarship, for example, and all that kind of stuff. Well, also, I think sometimes common sense goes out the window okay. when it comes to the Bible. We're going like, there already? Well, I just feel like because it's the Bible— we think there's like a lot of special rules and a lot. Now, maybe there are some, maybe there's some things about it that we can talk about that are, yeah. that are unique or that maybe we should treat it a little differently. But I'm just thinking sometimes people just forget that it is a book. And so right. there's certain reading strategies or things that mm -hmm. are common sense or, or at least should be pretty basic that we learn about in school in terms of how to read things that do apply to so, the Bible. So the Bible is a special book for people in terms of, religious significance and guidance for life and things like that. But that's the very reason for asking this question. Right. You but know. it's still a book. The noun is still book. And it's that means a, something. It's at least, well, it became a book. It didn't originate as a book. You know, individual writings that were collected and edited together and updated and things like that. But yeah, functionally, that's why we have the title. We have it. We're treating it as a book even though it's an anthology of literature. It's mm -hmm. more like a collection of Shakespeare's plays in one cover or something like that. Well, that's interesting, though, because that is something I think that's unique about it. I don't know of a lot of anthologies that large groups of people read as a consistent work. I, mm -hmm. I think that does matter in this conversation. Should it be read like any other book? In some ways, no, because I don't read any other book that's actually 66 different books mm -hmm. put into one mm -hmm. and then read them all as though they refer to each other and they should be read self-referentially. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, it's not like any other book, but I think that's also an assumption. Is it appropriate to read it that way? Or is it okay to, um, I'm giving a response to a paper 
or, or a book that someone wrote and it's about how Matthew is unique among the gospels. And what I really appreciate is that he sticks to, it's important to understand how Matthew is unique. Right. In my tradition, that was not important. In right. fact, that was scary because we needed to read Matthew in light of Mark, Luke, and John. They were all together. All saying the same thing. It was four volumes. Right. And so you have to take it in its totality rather mm -hmm. than, no, Matthew says different things. And that's actually not only just the truth, the mm -hmm. facts of the matter, it's actually important to what Matthew's trying to do, the uniqueness. So in terms of reading it as a book, I do think there's already an assumption by calling it a book. Right. So Matthew, for example, by asking questions that lead you to conclude that you know, he's saying something for a reason, there's a purpose behind, there's a thinking person behind this literature. At that point, we're already reading it like other books, and, and modern or ancient. We're already peering into, let's say, I mean, I hate this phrase, but the mind of the author or the context of the author or the context of the audience. And that's one way of framing the question. Is that something that we should be doing with the Bible, mm -hmm. which is you know, essentially approaching it critically? Right. Right. Which again, we've said this before, folks, on this other episodes, but reading it critically doesn't mean criticizing, criticizing, being against it. How can we cut the Bible down? It means reading it from the point of view where we are not the center of meaning, which is flawed. We can't do it perfectly all the time, but we're trying to get into that ancient moment, which I think most Christians, I think they get that, you know, they get that. But you know, there are implications of this, reading the Bible this way, because you're digging in behind, you're seeing how the sausage is made, you're going behind this, and you're saying, not only does Matthew have a way of saying something, but darn it all, it looks like he got this from Mark. And then Luke is maybe getting it from Matthew or Mark, and how do they relate to each other, and how did these things even come, who wrote this? And why did they write it the way they did? That's part of this whole issue is like, should we read the Bible like any other book? Mm -hmm. And I guess in that sense, my answer is, well, yeah, we do it all the time. And, and even relatively conservative people will do that because we have study Bibles that revel in maps and little essays in the back or footnotes and here's what a Pharisee is and giving dates for things and whatever. So I, I guess, should the Bible be read like any other book? I think... One answer is it has to be, if you want to understand it, with any sort of a view toward history and toward the past. Mm -hmm. Well, this is the, what we do. It's just I just have more questions. Yeah. Since we're starting the whole episode, the, the, the topic is a question, and I just have more questions. Because I, I also think, doesn't it depend on why you're reading it? Because I'm trying to think throughout this episode of other books that I've read, and I think that's important because— I want to keep these in mind side by side. And whenever I read, I can read, for instance, I think one of the most recent novels I read was Ernest Klein's uh, Ready Player One. And there's a way I read that where I'm in the story. I'm reading it for enjoyment. I'm reading it to pass the time. And it's an enjoyable read. Right. That's different than if I were a literary critic and needed to write an essay mm -hmm. on Ready Player One. Then I'm going to read it. I'm going to have a different reading strategy. I'm going to it for a very different reason. And I think that's important because sometimes when we think about reading the Bible and how we should read it, I think it's important first to ask, well, why am I reading this? Mm -hmm. If I'm reading it for historical questions that I have, then I'm going to read it through a critical eye. I'm mm -hmm. going to try to understand what have historians and scholars figured out about this. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be relevant to how and why and the way in which I'm reading. 
But if I'm reading it for enjoyment, maybe I don't need all of that. Right. And so I, I think that why am I reading it actually factors into should I be reading it like any other book? Mm-hmm. If I believe that the Bible is this inerrant law book or instruction manual from God, then I'm not going to read it like any other book because I believe it's not like any other book. Right. But then you start reading it and you realize they're making some historical claims here. Right. And different authors are making different non-compatible historical claims. And that brings up the whole, let's say, critical agenda. It's like, okay, what's going on here? And I guess one way of framing the question is, is it okay to press those questions, even for people who read it as purely, let's say, as spiritual immediacy? I mean, I hate putting it this way, but God's love letter to you, like this is God speaking to you. But then you notice these historical oddities, and then maybe you read some footnotes in a study Bible, or you watch you know, a documentary on HBO or something about the Bible, and, and it's like, oh, wait a minute, there are some problems here. So but, can, can we forestall that critical approach, or, or do we just ignore it because it's the Bible? Don't get into any of those questions, pal. You're just going to go into a, right. a deep, dark corner someplace. Well, and I think, I, I think we can't divorce this question again from the question of authority. Mm-hmm. Because for me, what I hear behind your question of, hey, don't question, you know, let's not look into the critical stuff. Let's not look into that. Behind that seems to be an assumption that the Bible is here to tell us something authoritative. Mm-hmm. And the only way it maintains that authority is if it's not tainted by human hands or the historical process. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. And so, Again, I think that's an assumption of the only reason I would come to the conclusion that I should avoid reading the Bible like any other book is because I have a particular perspective on what the Bible is yes, and how it came to be and what I'm supposed to use it for. Mm-hmm. So those, I feel like those are all related. They're all related. They're and inescapable. So I want to talk about what you just said, which is the historical critical and why people are afraid of that or avoid it. But I think that does go hand in hand with this authority question. Right. Because- it does. I mean, and, and to be fair, for my personal faith and journey with all of this, it absolutely changed how I thought of the authority of the Bible. To see Genesis having two creation stories, to see David being introduced Which twice. is why it's avoided to read it, let's say, critically. Right. And so I think, the yes, the answer to the question from my tradition growing up, should the Bible be read like any other book? The answer is no, because if you read it too closely or too—I mean, this is my snarky answer. <laughs> if you read it too closely or too critically— it will change. It'll undermine. It'll undermine right. the presuppositions we've already given to it. Right. So people in that mindset will be less inclined to answer yes to our question, should the Bible be read like any other Oh, for Bible. sure. Right. The thing, you know, again, from a historical angle, people who are interested in history, you have, I just think of one example here. In 701 BCE, the mighty Assyrians were not successful in sacking Jerusalem. They had just sacked the northern kingdom, the capital of Samaria in the north, and they couldn't get through and defeat Jerusalem. And you have an account from the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, talking about this episode. And what a responsible historian will do will look at that account and say, okay, look, these people lost a battle. They've got skin in the game. And we're going to read this account with a critical eye. 
should the Bible get away with not being interrogated like that, right? And and my answer is no, I don't think the Bible should be like get a free pass because right. you also have a biblical account in 2 Kings and a little bit in Isaiah as well and and those two accounts are very similar but that has its own angle, right? Well, but it's the right angle. Okay, you can believe that and that I don't lose any sleep over it, but you start thinking very seriously, though, about the skin in the game that the biblical writer has. Right. So should you read the Bible like any other book? Well, you can't not if you're interested in questions like, well, what happened here in 701 in this attack of Jerusalem? You know, did, did it go Sennacherib's way? Who, who basically, I mean, Sennacherib couldn't breach the walls of Jerusalem. So he has this account where he says something like, I hemmed them in like a bird in a cage. They couldn't get out if they wanted to. Like, I didn't mean to take it down. I just meant to keep them in there. It's not that I couldn't get in. It's that I wasn't letting them out. I didn't want to. I didn't even want to get in. And the biblical account is very different, including how Sennacherib dies at the end and things like that. And I I find those perspectives fascinating. I don't know if it's going to be valuable to people who are reading these stories devotionally, although frankly, I'm not sure how much devotional content is in the Siege of Jerusalem, but that's my own bias, as we say. So it comes up though, right? Again, if you're asking, if you're motivated by historical interests, which oddly enough, I think definitely predominates in conservative circles as much as it does in, let's say, non-conservative mainline circles. It definitely is there. But sometimes you pull the brakes on too quickly. Like you do historical a little bit, but if you go too far, you start messing with the authority of the text. And then what? I think that gets in some ways to at least one of the hearts of this question, which is if we're going to go to the Bible for historically investigation of what really happened, then I feel like it's, this is going to be, maybe get me in trouble. I feel like it's academically dishonest not to follow the best practices within the field of history. So don't say you're doing a probe into the history of this if we're not following the processes and procedures established in the field of history, Mm -hmm. because that's all we have. That's what we mean by history. What we mean by historical fact is the things that have gone through the gauntlet of a process we've developed over the last 200 years to determine Mm -hmm. what actually happened. Or what may have happened or may not have happened. Well, yeah, of course. Once you actually go through the process, there's very little it did. It's a lot of it may have. It's not a matter of proving something one or the other, but it's a matter of asking those questions and saying, yeah, I mean, this is not an objective account that I'm reading here. This is an account written by people who are trying to get a point across. So if that's what we're talking about, if I'm reading the Bible for historical content, should I read it like any other book? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I don't know why that's even a question. Because historical inquiry has undermined the authority of the Bible. And I think that's what people freak out about. And so they want to read it historically still, but in a more of an apologetic, defensive kind of way. Okay, so here's another way of maybe phrasing the question a little bit. Does the Bible invite historical interrogation? The very content of it, does it invite historical interrogation? Meaning, we have four Gospels. We have an account of Paul and Acts, and an account of what Paul's early ministry in dealing with Peter and James in Galatians. They don't square up very well, right? 
four Gospels, you have these two histories of Israel in the Hebrew Bible. You've got two creation accounts in Genesis. You've got two sets of paired genealogies in Genesis 1 right. to 11, right? So it's, you've got all this stuff happening there where it's like, okay, how can both of these genealogies be accurate? You have Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy, right? They're different Different. They're not. You can't just bring them together and say they're the same thing. So, does a faithful person ignore what seems to be like in our face? Like you have something to think through here, right? So, should we read this as something that is inviting historical interrogation? That can be done with humility and respect, but still, historical interrogation. Is that what we should be doing with these texts? I mean, does the Bible invite that? I think it does. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's inescapable because, ironically, because of the very historical claims that the Bible makes, it's inviting itself. It's sitting there saying, like, an inquisitive person is going to say, okay, how can these? How are these things compatible? Well, the, the genre matters here. And yeah. there seems to be genre indications that it's trying to purport some historical information. Now— I think where we get into trouble is when we criticize, I'm going to use it that way, okay. not, not be critical and read the Bible critically, but when we criticize the Bible for not being the kind of history that we write in the 21st century, then I feel, and I think that's, it seems like it's splitting hairs, but I think it's actually really important to acknowledge that on the one hand, I think what we're both saying on the one hand is the Bible doesn't purport history in the way we would do it in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean it's also not trying to do anything historical. Right. And that's a, that's an important right. distinction to make. And that's, for us, the historical critical question is, how are the biblical writers doing history? Yes, and I think that's an important That's a question. very big distinction. Right? And that's, there's a level of subtlety to that question right. that I think it's not an obvious question. I think that might come up in a lot of people's minds. Well, and at the risk of maybe being a little arrogant. Go for it, Jared. It's a sophisticated question. Well, it is. That I think the average person who's not in the field of whether it's biblical studies or history, it may take a while to even grasp that distinction. Right. Or or maybe not in the field themselves, but at least interested in that and like reading about history. Yeah, Yeah. not maybe like vocationally in the field, but just like have read through. Again, for me, when I say in the field, I'm thinking of a distinct process of inquiry mm-hmm. that then gives us it's a, it's a methodology right. that then gives us results. Right. And if you're not familiar with that methodology, then from the outside it's going to look like that those distinctions don't matter. But from within that process or inquiry, uh-huh. it absolutely matters. It's funny we I just saw that a Texas lawmaker just proposed that textbooks don't have theories but have only facts, things that can be verified. <laughs> Facts. And it's because they're using a common, everyday understanding of the word theory. But that's not how science uses the word theory. And that's how it feels a Mm -hmm. little bit like history. If we don't understand the nuances, we'll use the common, everyday understanding of historical writing or historical facts. But it gets more nuanced once you step into the field. So in that sense, reading it critically, the Bible is actually essential at that point. Because again, we're trying to understand history not from our own set of expectations, right. but trying to understand as best as we can. This is not a this is not a science, folks. This is there's an art to this as well. But we're trying to understand something about the nature of historiography in the ancient world. And again, there's a, there's plenty in the Bible that doesn't claim to be historical. There are Psalms, or you know, 
Proverbs and things like that. Mm -hmm. But most of the Bible, including the prophetic literature, is very closely tied, particularly to the monarchy. I mean, but it's very, very closely tied to history. And if people are interested, as many people are, like in graduate school, for example, you you go to a big graduate school and you study Hebrew origins. Now, the Bible is a part of that, but it's only a part of that because there's also archaeology, there's linguistics, and what happens is that scholars put together a picture of where the Israelites came from. Now, the Bible has a description about that. But it doesn't flow very nicely with other evidence that we have. And, I mean, understandably, that can concern some people, freak them out a little bit, say, well, I'm going to ignore all that science stuff and just deal with the Bible because I want to value it. And other people are saying, well, actually, it's because I value it that I want to understand why they're talking about themselves the way that they are. And that's critical inquiry. That is reading the Bible, again, as you would other similar kinds of books. You mentioned the genre thing before, right? I mean, obviously you don't read the Bible like you would read a grocery list I mean, the, right. or a sports page or an op-ed necessarily. It's a, the different genres. But we do have, you know, there is historiography in antiquity. Right. And historians, I mean, Thucydides says, you know, I make stuff up. <laughs> you know, I have to, I have phone dialogue. I, I, you know, and that's just how you tell the story by being very creative. Right. And, if that's something that you do in the ancient world, should we not be asking those same, interrogating the Bible from a historical point of view saying, and it's so much easier when you've got two accounts of the same thing that differ, right? It just, it just raises all these wonderful questions. And I think it gets us to a place of understanding historical things. Again, the, the question is, okay, but how does the Bible then function in the life of the church, which is a really big modern, I would even say problem. Like, how do you marry those two things? And that really comes to maybe kind of the second half of our discussion, I think, which is, should we read the Bible like any other book? Again, if we're approaching it for historical information, which it seems to be inviting because it has historical information in it. Yeah. The answer is yes, because Mm. why wouldn't we put it through the same process we would any other book to understand how it's trying to do history and Mm -hmm. what it's doing. Where this gets problematized is it's also used functionally very differently by millions of people every week. And that's that's really the the challenge here. And that Mm -hmm. is where I would also say, yeah, I think there's a lot of value because sometimes the modern project, and I would say the evangelical tradition getting caught up in the modern project has done, is it's confused those functions. So we miss the richness and the value of reading a book communally as a church because we're still stuck on the history part. Because the history part was never a problem in the history of these movements until like, say the 19th century. Right. It became a modern problem. And and certain traditions have focused so much on that. Like we can't get to the devotional, the enriching, the inspiring Mm -hmm. ways of reading this book, because the only thing that matters is what actually happened. And the Bible is historical, and it's going to prove all these Mm -hmm. scientists and archaeologists wrong. And in that way, ironically enough, even on the kind of, I would call it the devotional side, although I mean it more broadly than Mm -hmm. that, I think there's so much value in reading the Bible like any other book on that side of it. Because whenever I'm reading Moby Dick, you're missing the point of the book if you're reading it in a historical critical way. Like, sure, if that's what you're trying to do, 
But if I were to go to a, uh, maybe we have a different example of like Lord of the Rings Mm -hmm. and I'm going to a book study and we're supposed to be talking about how the Lord of the Rings can enrich our lives. Mm -hmm. That's the name of the book study. Mm-hmm. We're all there for that very purpose, how it can enrich our lives. I'm going to be annoyed if somebody comes into that book study and just start pointing out all these historical critical notes. Well, you know, Tolkien, whenever he wrote that, he just did this. And <laughs> like, that's not the point of the thing. And he got the orc idea from this place. Right, and, exactly. But yeah. I feel like that's sometimes the evangelical tradition doesn't get past that to just come to the, how can the book enrich our lives part? Okay, let's dig a little further in that, because what complicates all this is, listen, we just want the Bible to enrich our lives, yeah. right? But because God wrote it, in some sense, God is involved in it. So, you know, we can talk about the Lord of the Rings not always being concerned with historical questions and all that, and what's historical about the Lord of the Rings anyway, except for the authorship issue, right. like when and where it was written right, and right. for what, what purpose. But the thing is, you know, people are always going to come back and say, and I understand this, they're going to come back and say, okay, all this historical stuff, but the bottom line is that God is involved in the production of this. And therefore, there's a uniqueness of this that we just have to accept and not engage in historical interrogation of this text because God is involved. So what do you say about that, Jared? Well, I think the whole point of this episode is you to say that's unbeliever. untrue. Okay. What's untrue? God? Why would I need to read it differently because of that? There's so many assumptions. Well, that's, see, that's the thing. I, I, that's, I mean, I'm asking you for that reason because it's like, what? Why do we assume that if God's involved, it has to be unique? And it can't be involved in historical ambiguity. It can't be touched by human hands or right. have human origins. Or, or human perspectives on right. it. Right. So I don't know why those are incompatible, first of all. I think there's assumptions in that. I think they're seen as, uh, by some people, not everybody, but I think they're seen as incompatible, again, for what you said before, because it's been part... Okay, most conservative Protestants trace themselves back to the Protestant Reformation. Right. And especially there are the rise of like one text, one meaning, and you can ferret it out scientifically or linguistically, and now you know what it really says. Well, the, the Bible got us out from under the authority of the church, which and it became a different corrupt. kind of authority then. Right. And one thing that I mean that was relatively unquestioned for much of church history is let's say the basic reliability of the Bible historically. Right. Like there was a flood, there was a Tower of Babel, right. you know, all this kind of stuff. And that is where Protestantism cut its, you know, its teeth, <laughs> you know, on that. But then the challenges started coming and I think many Christians in the West and elsewhere too are that DNA is still with them about a particular way of looking at the Bible historically. And I think that feels of a lot of apologetics too. Mm -hmm. And the historical complexities that have come to light because of things like archaeology or just cultural anthropology and various sciences on top of that, it has raised the question for us in a way that I think it's unavoidable. Like, should we read the Bible like any other book? It's mm-hmm. it's very, very hard to give a glib answer. So, well, of course not. It's the Word of God. Right. All right. But like you're saying, well, you're making assumptions there that because it's the Word of God, like the human element is is not present. And, you know, I wrote a book, Inspiration Incarnation, that sort right. of tries to argue that, 
Listen, Jesus was fully human and the Bible is fully human. What are you going to do? Well, it's divine too. Yeah, it is divine, but that doesn't mean Jesus is less than human. Right. Likewise, was, you can, you can yeah. say inspired all you want, mm-hmm. but that word is not a magic word to wipe away the humanity of the text. Right. And as soon as you're dealing with the humanity of the text, we're dealing with methods of inquiry into what happened and what maybe didn't happen. And sometimes we just don't know, and sometimes biases come in, all that kind of stuff. But the inquiry, the interrogation, seems to be, I would say, largely unavoidable. I mean, how can you not think about this I agree. And I think the ethical import for me is, I don't know how we get away from, if we can't interrogate the Bible, we can't interrogate interpretations of the Bible. Right. And that is so ripe for authoritarianism and abuse cult where it's what do you mean i can't question the bible most of the time when people say that it's i can't question this interpretation of the bible and i think yes if it means like whatever gets us away from that i think is a good thing and so i just think i just think we have such a small step from well no we can't read the bible like any other book because it's the word of god to Mm -hmm. well you can't question my interpretation on tithing because it's in the word of god Mm mm-hmm Another way of phrasing a question I hear a lot, can we trust the Bible in a different way than we trust an op-ed piece in a newspaper? Well, it's interesting because I immediately think to my work with families because trust is a big deal within a family business setting. And I immediately go to, well, there's different kinds of trust. Yeah, I can trust their character. I could not trust their competency. I could not trust their commitment. Mm-hmm. Those are very different and they have very different outcomes. So I, if I trust your character, whew, that's a big relief. Mm-hmm. But I, maybe I don't trust your competency. And that's just a different strategy for dealing with it. And yeah. so I automatically <laughs> go to, well, what do we mean? Can we trust the Bible for what? To trust the Bible, I think what is behind that is trusting it to give you, again, loaded terms, objective, factual information every time there's a sentence in the Bible. Right. right? And, and then, no, you can't. Right. I right. don't think I you mean, can trust the Bible for that. And to expect that of someone, is that asking them for a mature kind of trust, right? It's not like we're over, it's not about being over God and knowing better than God. It's dealing with a text that was written by people. And what do we do with that? How do we understand it? And do I trust it? Well, the very fact that I care is itself like an existential move towards trust. I want to understand. I want to be a part of this. It's an engagement. It's an engagement, right? It's it's existential buy-in, right? To me, that's, that says a lot, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I mean, not everyone would see it that way, but I do. You know, I, I think that's a big part of this is like you can interrogate the Bible, but the very fact that you're spending time doing that is significant. It's so interesting to me that someone who says that they trust the Bible in maybe uh, more of a, a kind of, I don't know the right way. To, I don't know what we're supposed to say now, evangelical way. It's just interesting that you talk about the kind of the existential engagement in it. I feel like my life doesn't look. I would answer that question to say, no, I don't trust the Bible mm-hmm. to give me that. But my life doesn't probably look terribly different in terms of what, what that actually means right. for people. Like, wh- I don't know. I'm such a pragmatist. Like, what do you mean? Like, what, what do you do differently than I would do because you, quote, trust the Bible and I, quote, don't for this particular thing? Like, it I don't. Just, it just means I have the right idea. In it, you exactly. It, that, that's what it comes down to right. is it just means, like, I feel confident or I feel certain that I'm right about how the world actually works. Because I find this here. Because I found it here. It's like, okay, well, good Mm -hmm. for you. I mean, I mean that sincerely. If Mm -hmm. you need to feel certain 
and that helps you, great. We're all, I mean, and we're of all course, that is based stuff. on again an interpretation of that story or that passage or that word or whatever, right? Against the backdrop of a whole host of encultured assumptions. But, but see, that's just it. I mean, don't bother me with all these fancy words and stuff like that. But it is, you know, if you're if you start taking it seriously, digging in, you you can't help but see your own biases, your own assumptions, the baggage we bring with us when we say simple things like "I trust the Bible." Yeah, I think I want to end by saying, in some ways, we're we're arguing with two interlocutors here. On one mm-hmm. side, we have the more traditional conservative Protestant who's going to answer the question, should we read the Bible like any other book with a resounding no, mm-hmm. right? And we're saying, maybe we should. That's kind of what the vibe is in this conversation. Yeah. Maybe we should. But I think I want to end by saying there's a whole group of people, and I would have put myself in this camp a while back, where that's actually not what they're asking. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of people to answer the question, should the Bible be read like any other book, to answer it yes, will actually bring more engagement with the Bible, not mm-hmm. less. I think the assumption from the vantage point of a conservative Protestant is if you answer this question, should the Bible be read like any other book, and you answer it yes, it loses its sheen and it loses its shine, and therefore people are going to stop reading it. Mm -hmm. And I run into people all the time where when they learn to read it like any other book, Mm -hmm. it actually becomes more valuable to them because they're not caught up in all the trappings of Mm -hmm. history and this, and this is how I'm supposed to, and it just becomes this rule thing and it becomes feeling trapped and claustrophobic with it like rather that, like than they have to defend it or something. Right. Too. I feel trapped in right. a, a methodology. Right. And so I kind of am coming at this whole question with a resounding, yes, please read it like any other book, because I found so much value in it when mm-hmm. I let go of all those trappings and just read it like another book. So and, I feel like those are two different ways of coming at the same question. And on that last point, I just, I can verify that from teaching college students the last 11 years that they feel liberated, not not to escape the Bible, but it's like, as, as students said, comparing gospel counts, how they tell parables or stories differently. And one student said, this is amazing. It's like they're actually thinking about what they're saying. Like there's a mind behind this and they're engaged in it because it stops being sort of that children's story thing, you know, mm-hmm. and you start seeing there's a reason why people read the Bible like any other book because they're inquiring and then questions come up that are unavoidable. Yep. Anyway. All right, folks. folks, I hope we solved this for you again. (laughs) Given that the the ratio of questions asked to answers given was quite high, I I don't think we probably did. But you know what? That's okay, folks. You can handle it. This is okay. (laughs) (laughs) But it is, to me, the very fact that the questions generate more questions is part of what makes this worthwhile. You know, it isn't just like, let's problematize. It's like, no, questions invariably come up. One question leads to five other questions and you get to try to explore those. And if we don't have the pressure of like coming up with the kind of Bible we're used to seeing, that curiosity can be very life affirming. And, you know, I never get tired of teaching the Bible for that very reason. It's like, every time I read it, it's like, I didn't see this before. What's going on here? Why do you say this? And all kind of stuff. So it's And if it's the goal cool. isn't the finish line of being certain and having all the right answers, but we can learn to enjoy the process, mm-hmm. then the questions become part of the fun. That's the interesting part. Yes. It's not an obstacle to get to some grand conclusion. Right. Should we close in prayer? Uh no. No, okay. See you folks. See ya. Bye. 
Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to the BibleForNormalPeople.com front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com forward slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. You've just made it through another episode of The Bible for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch the latest episode of our other show, Faith for Normal People, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People podcast team. Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Stephanie Spate, Natalie Wyant, Stephen Henning, Tessa Stoltz, Haley Warren, Nick Striegel, and Jessica Schau. Whenever I'm reading Moby Dick, as I want to do. Yeah, every day. I mean, doesn't everybody? (laughs) I don't know why that came to mind. Too thick. Oh, there you go. Problematizing these simple <laughs> questions again, Jared. This is why you're so annoying. This is why nobody likes you on I know. the internet. <laughs> they don't like you at all. So That's okay. I just don't ever go on the internet. Yeah, so. I think, you know. And I think I would maybe want to end by saying. Do you want to be mindful of my time? No. No. Um, okay. I, don't, I don't care about your time at all. <laughs>